0: As I was meditating, meditating on this psalm and psalms in general, um, and the emotions expressed there, um, I felt it necessary, if nothing but for my own sake, to give a little bit of preliminary here that um, we believe here at Redeemer that you know God is ultimately forgotten. Ultimately, big picture, God is for God. Um, the ramifications of that for us are wonderful, but ultimately God is for God. Um, we do not have a man-centered theology, we have a God-centered theology. Um, and so I, I've even been tempted in the past to respond to the Psalms in a way that you know, it's it's not about me, it's, it's about God. Um, I think a better thing to say would be it's not ultimately about me, it's ultimately about God. I think the Holy Spirit would have us see and feel the emotions of the Psalms in a way that glorifies God. But it is ultimately about God. So before we dive into Psalm 139 this morning, I would just have you listen for a few moments. as I, I want us to have a vision of God from the Scripture. So I'm just going to read a few passages about who God is. In Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In Exodus, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In First Timothy one seventeen it extols, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. There is none holy like the Lord, there is none beside you, there is no rock like our God. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place." Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Before the mountains were born or brought forth, the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. I want us to have a vision this morning for the eternal, holy righteous creator God of the universe. And it is with that vision of God I would like us to examine the Psalm 139. I would like to start in Psalm 139 by examining it at least in part from the perspective of the natural man. Let's read Psalm 139 135 together. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now here we have the first indication that this is not written from the perspective of a natural man. The way David addresses God is intimately personal. The way that he describes his knowledge of him. The imagery here is one of pillagers pillaging a city or of investigators coming through every shred of of material or particulate in search of evidence. However, this imagery breaks down very quickly when we contemplate that this searching and knowing took no effort on God's part. God's knowledge of who David was was total and complete, and it took no effort. It had already been accomplished. Nothing about David's personhood would surprise God. And the same is true for us today. God, through no actual work of investigation, knows you. This almighty God that we have a vision of from Scripture knows you. Verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. God literally knows when we stand and when we sit. Now, verse 1 introduced it, but now we see on full display the omniscience of God. Now, omniscience, I I think that we today may at least think that we have a better uh, picture of what that might look like. Uh, For example, uh, Wes with, with no offense, what, what is something that, one object that essentially can transform you from essentially the opposite of omniscience to someone who has access to an incredible amount of knowledge? Something that you probably have in your pocket. Your, yeah, your phone. <laughs> so I think that kids today might have a little bit better, at least feel they have a little bit better understanding of what um omniscience might feel like because in, in most of our hands or pockets we have access to an incredible amount of information. You know, I remember as probably a 12-year-old boy before this phenomenon um, having a discussion with a, probably a 28 to 30-year-old man about a f- particular feat that had been accomplished on a football field by a certain player. Um, and we were disputing who that player was, and we, for probably 30 minutes, just argued and argued and argued, because we were both totally convinced that we were right. Now I was taught better, my mother's here. But that that happened. <laughs> ha- were, were that to happen in today's context, that that argument would only last long enough for someone to pull out their phone and Google it. And it's so, it's so easy for us to be... A, Uh, accustomed to that. That that does not surprise us. What surprises us is when we don't have access to that. I know, I feel I I was somewhat of a latecomer to having a smartphone, but even when I got one, and probably a year later, I really started getting to know Phil. That time, Phil did not have one. I just remember being so surprised one day when he told me that he and Candice had been out, and they had had a discussion about something, and they they could not come to a resolution until they came home and looked it up on the computer, and that just that just <laughs> boggled my mind. I, I couldn't understand it. Now, just for a moment, I will say I did start trying to um, expose the the usefulness of them, not just the dangers to Phil. It was about two years ago. We were going to Birmingham for Phil's birthday, um, and we were riding with them and we came up on a significant. Traffic, and it looked like we would be sitting there for quite some time. Like, man, we're going to be late. Uh, I was like, well, I mean, is Google not rerouting us? And he picked up his printed off MapQuest directions and said, "They're not. They're probably not going to read." But omniscience. So we do have access to many if not all, significant historical and present-day realities. But if I take out my phone and I Google what I did last Friday afternoon, it couldn't tell me. But I could even conceive of a day in which our grandchildren had some type of video monitoring in which they were literally recorded at all times. But even that does not begin to be omniscient. This first says God knows our thoughts. This is the reality that God's knowledge of us is intimate and it is infinite. God knows my thoughts. But David is not satisfied with this picture alone. as if he wanted to address every possible what-if that could be asked in reference to the omniscience of God. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Not only does he know our rising and our sitting, he knows our paths to and fro, our lying down, he is acquainted with and he, or familiar with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Unless we should think that God's knowledge is somehow limited to the past and the present, the psalmist here exclaims that he knows my words even before I say them. God knows every word that you have ever spoken. God knows every word you have ever thought of saying. God knows every word you will ever say and every word you will ever think of saying. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. John Calvin on this verse. David, there can be no doubt, means that he was surrounded on every side and so kept in sight by God that he could not escape in any quarter. One who finds the way blocked and turns back, but David found himself hedged in behind as well as before. God holds man under his almighty hand and nothing can escape his omniscient gaze. Verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now I vividly remember reading this passage for the first time in my adult life and was talking with Phil about this this week and I was reading it from perspective of the natural man and I was just thinking that of these realities that God knows my thoughts he knows all my thoughts he knows every word I've ever said he knows every word I've ever thought about saying he knows everything about me and he is this holy just righteousness demanding God what is the natural reaction to this knowledge is it not terror Like we have totally exchanged God's glory for our own glory on a daily basis and he has seen every act of rebellion against him. How is it wonderful? Well, it was wonderful to David. It can be wonderful for us as well. We'll examine this in a few moments. So let us continue looking at this from the Perspective of the natural man, David says that this knowledge is too high. Literally, he cannot reach the breadth of this knowledge in his mental capacity. It is beyond ours as well, for a finite mind cannot grasp infinite reality. So David moves from God's omniscience to his omnipresence. Verse 7 Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? Now, David does not respond in terror to this reality of God's omniscience or omnipresence, but he does illustrate what the natural reaction of man would be. He asks the question, were I to flee from the presence of this omniscient God, where could I go? Or where could I go to escape God's presence and His power? So he goes on, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Spurgeon on if I ascend into heaven. The ascent, if it were possible, would be unavailing for purposes of escape. It would, in fact, be flying into the center of the fire to avoid the heat. There he would be immediately confronted by the terrible personality of God. If I make my bed in Sheol, then trying... To discern the exact interpretation of what this word means, I think it's sufficient to see it as a picture of one extreme to the other. David says, no ascent could escape from God, and no descent could escape from God. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, translation of the wings of the morning, take the rays of the morning light, Picture with me a great plane and a mountain before that plane and the sun rising above the mountain and shooting out across that plane. Were you to ride that in pursuit of escaping God, it would be to no avail. Or picture flying at the speed of light 600 million miles per hour across the solar system into another galaxy. Somehow, this were possible, we would be no further from God than when we started. This second part of that verse, and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea. I um, legitimately had this thought yesterday. I took a hour or so break um, from studying and preparation, and I was out enjoying God's creation on a on a jet ski. And I was shooting out across the water at around 75 miles per hour. Um, And, you know, I've never had this thought in my car. I've never had the illusion that I could escape a policeman in my car. Uh, But as I was driving on that jet ski at 75 miles an hour, and I thought, you know, this thing is is very fast and very agile. Like, I'll legitimately think if I saw a Marine police and they wanted to pull me over, so to speak, I wasn't doing it illegal, but... Um, If they wanted to pull me over, I legitimately think that I could outrun and outmaneuver them in this jet ski and they could not catch me. And as I had that thought yesterday, I immediately thought of this verse and thought if I had the fastest boat in the world and and sped out to the, the middle of the Pacific as far away from anything, I would still be no further from the presence of God. Whatever realm one might escape to, God's hand is still there and he is in complete control. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. The psalmist having acknowledged that no ascent, no descent, Or fleeing could give him refuge. If he were fleeing, perhaps darkness might give him a moment of repose. Yet he immediately and vividly displays the folly of this notion. That darkness could conceal him from God. For God sees as well in the deepest recesses of the the night as he does in the noonday sun. He's a fool who thinks that darkness conceals him from the gaze of God. Now we've looked at these verses at least in part from the perspective of a a natural man. Um, But David was no natural man. Uh, the, The Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart, as... Ryan would say he was a man whose heart beat for the glory of God. So let's just take a moment to go back and reread these verses and see them from the heart of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Verses 1 through 6 from the heart of David, I see God's intimate omniscience. David exclaims that the God of the universe knows him. That God knows his thoughts. He knows when he has reached the depths of despair and cannot endure another day. He knows when I'm totally and completely overwhelmed. He knows my thoughts of petition and prayer even before I speak them. This knowledge that God knows me intimately and infinitely is too wonderful. If it says, I cannot grasp its depths but I will delight in its wonder. This is the heart of David. And then again, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and that night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. In this second section from the heart of David, I see uh, I see God's intrusive omnipresence. For His omnipresence is not like the presence of oxygen. For surely if we went anywhere on land, on the earth, the presence of oxygen would be there. But it is simply there God's presence is not like that. God's presence is intrusive. God says that wherever He is, God leads Him and holds Him. God's presence is intrusive for the believer in leading and holding Him, and it is intrusive for the non believer in judgment. You know, young person, I think that a lot of us are taught that God is omnipresent, that God's is, presence is always with us, and we know it in our head, but do we know it experientially? Do we really feel that reality? I went to a, a camp as a 12-year-old boy up in the upstate New York. Uh, it was in the middle of the Adirondacks, which means in the middle of nowhere. Nothing but mountains for miles and miles and miles, no civilization, so to speak. We were playing an all-camp game, and there was a circle road all the way around the camp. And that was the radius of the camp. No one went outside that circle. But there were service roads all throughout the camp. And we were playing an all-camp capture the flag game, something like that. And I was running in the other team's territory, and I saw one of, my opponents, and, and I was on a road with, I assumed to be an access road, and I immediately took off the road running as hard as I, and fast as I could. I ran until I couldn't run anymore and stopped and caught my breath. I said, well, he's probably not going to catch me. I was like, well, I'll just keep running until I hit the, the, the circle of the camp. And so I took off running as fast as I could again and ran until I could not run anymore. And then I came to the reality that I was lost. I was far, as far as I could run twice outside this camp, and there was no roads, there was no phones, there was nothing. And I became terrified. I mean, I was petrified understanding how lost I was. As a young person, I knew this reality in my head, but I think that had I actually rehearsed this truth and believed it, I would have been comforted by the presence of God, even as a lost little boy out there in the middle of the mountains. God's presence is always with us, and that should bring great comfort to the believer. Now David moves from extolling the omniscience and omnipresence to the way that he was made. and In this section I see... Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. It is not sufficient to say that God knew that I would be born, and that his presence was there when I was conceived. No, God is the fundamental cause of your existence. Now you might say, God did not create me. I know how I was conceived, and it was very natural. You see, God created all natural processes. And he uses natural processes to accomplish his supernatural plan. Now from from these verses, we could deliver a whole message on the sanctity and wonder of human life. I won't this morning, but it is beautifully here. My mother's womb, David, says that you were work forming me from my very beginning. I'm in the medical field, for those of you that don't know, and I'm studying to be a nurse practitioner. And the more and more I, I study the human body, the more I'm just totally amazed at the, the, the just incredible nature of the way our bodies work. It it is truly is amazing. Even even David, he had he couldn't have the understanding we have today, but even the understanding he he has, he he understands that that he is fearfully and wonderfully made. He responds, "Wonderful, all your works, my soul knows it very well." When my frame my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And when I was developing in my mother's womb, I was not hidden from you. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Spurgeon on this verse. When as yet there were none of our members in existence, all of these members were before the eye of God in his sketchbook of his foreknowledge and predestination. 17 how precious to me are your thoughts O oh God how vast is the sum of them if I would count them they are more than the sand I awake and I am still with you how is David moved by this knowledge that God created him knows him and his presence is continually with him this is an amazing thought to David what that means is that that God has thoughts about us. that is amazing. that is precious to David. And these thoughts are not just a few. David says they're more than the sand. God thinks upon us infinitely. This is astounding, and this is precious to David, to the believer. When I awake, I'm still with you. The thought that I jotted down in reference to this verse is when I'm overwhelmed by the thought of God's glory and stay up all night in wonder and then fall into deep sleep. When I'm awake, I'm still surrounded by this knowledge. Now, we saw when we started the, a vision of this glorious, holy, just God. And then we examined the beginning of this passage from the perspective of the natural man. And we said the natural response of this God and His omniscience, omnipresence and sovereignty is terror. But it's wonderful and precious to David. So the question is, what makes this knowledge wonderful and precious to us, and not terrible? Now there's a variety of ways that we could get to an answer here, but as we are in a psalm of David, let us see how David points us to the way that we can treasure these realities. 2 Samuel's message was delivered to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, I shall come up from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man, with the stripes of the son of man. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God made a covenant with David that he would establish his kingdom through David forever. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that covenant. So, how can we as sinners embrace the omniscience, omnipresence and sovereignty of God in wonder and amazement and not in terror and fear? The answer is Jesus Christ. David did not have the full revelation that we have today. Therefore, we can have an even more informed reaction to this knowledge. Jesus Christ came and He lived a perfect life He went to the cross and took on our sin and then absorbed the wrath of God and gave us His righteousness. God has redeemed us through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is why we can see God's omniscience, omnipresence, and sovereignty and say, this is wonderful and this is precious to me. We can take these verses in a negative or a positive connotation and either way they elicit gratefulness and joy. For if we look and see that God has seen every sinful act of rebellion that we have ever committed and that in spite of that God has sent Christ to redeem us, that should elicit wonder. At the same time, we said, as we said with David, he knows our disappointments, he knows our struggles, he knows our... When we need him knows most, he knows our prayers. He knows everything about us, and he is redeeming us. This is wonderful knowledge. Once again, I want to say, though, that it's not ultimately about me. It's about God. But the fact that God knows me, that His presence is ever with me, that He thinks of me continually is amazing. And it should produce wonder and awe. Namely, it should produce worship. And this worship glorifies God. So it is ultimately about God. Now we have a transition in the passage. So you might say to me, Andrew, you said we want to feel the emotion of this psalm, we want to respond... In a similar way that David responded, so I look and I see these glories, and so I respond by, slay my neighbor. Slay my unbelieving boss. Now I'm being unfair to David here because his context and even his covenant is different than ours today, but I wanted to illustrate the tension we feel when we read these verses. It is real tension. You know, when I, when I read the, 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 the passage that we have examined thus far, I would anticipate David to continue on in worship as he does in other psalms with something like, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But this is how David responds. Let's read it. Starting in verse 9. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I counted them my enemies. These verses and others like them in the Psalms are referred to as as imprecatory Psalms. These Psalms call down God's judgment on God's enemies and express hatred for them. So how are we to relate? What do we what do we do with them? I just first make a few observations. First, let's make the observation: this is not a personal hatred of David. This is not a personal vendetta against his personal enemies. God does not say David does not say to God, "These are my enemies, so I want you to destroy them for my sake." How is it, are they described? They're described as wicked. Men of blood, they speak against God, they hate God, they rise up against God. I have made them my enemies because they are your enemies, is what David says. Let us also consider that there are references in the New Testament that point to sinners that have so trodden on the grace of God that the time of redemption is past and that there is nothing left for them but judgment. Paul in 1 Corinthians 16.22 does say, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Also, Jesus quoted Psalm 69 multiple times. This is one of the most vivid and strongest imprecatory psalms. And he quoted it on several occasions. Specifically, Psalm 69.9 is quoted by Paul in Romans 15 as being the words of Jesus. Therefore, we can see that David, as a pointer to Jesus Christ, is calling for judgment on the enemies of God, who Christ will finally judge with vengeance. We also must acknowledge that when we pray, even so, come Lord Jesus, that an aspect of Christ's return and reign is the destruction of the wicked. Now, why would David turn from this adoration of the character of God to judgment of the wicked? Consider that beholding the glory of God in wonder does invoke a hatred of that which would defame His glory. Spurgeon said on this section of the psalm, to love all men with benevolence is our duty, but to love any wicked man with complacency would be a crime. To hate a man for his own sake or for any evil done to us would be wrong. But to hate a man because he is the foe of all goodness and the enemy of all righteousness is nothing more or less than an obligation. For the more we love God, the more indignant we grow with those who refuse him in their affections. Let us also remember the context that David lived in To this point in Jewish history, God had regularly and consistently destroyed his enemies, both naturally, both supernaturally, and through the nation of Israel. Now, these are a few general observations on this impregatory psalm, but I think that there is a lens through which we can see these verses that might be even more helpful for us today. Now, we know that the New Testament teaches us to love our enemies and even to praise God when we are reviled for Christ. So I think we would be very amiss to try to look out and discern who has moved past repentance into damnation and pray for that. Can't know anyone's heart. Now I did quote Paul in reference to saying, if anyone has no love for the Father, let him be accursed. Let's not forget that Paul was so passionate about the redemption of his sinful brethren that he said, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for their sake. So it is clear that I, we are instructed to love and witness and preach the gospel to unbelievers. So then, what are, how can we draw implications from this passage for us today? I think we can look at these two responses of David through two lenses. The, David looks at the glory of God and he looks out and he sees obvious sin and he's filled with righteous indignation towards that sin. I think we, see, we can see David's response to obvious sin and David's response to hidden sin. His response to obvious sin is righteous indignation. He says he hates it and he prays for God to destroy it. For us, I think that we should look and see the obvious sin in our own lives and hate it. And ask for God to destroy it. Hatred is a righteous indignation, is a... Virtue, but I believe in our fallen nature, the most glorifying object of our own righteous hatred would be our own sin. The New Testament uses vivid words to describe how we should deal with our own sin, mortify it, destroy it. but we must be careful not to make this an act of self-willed achievement for just as God acknowledges, David acknowledges that God is the means of the destruction of the wicked, so God is the essential means of our mortification of sin. Now, after seeing the obvious sin of the enemies of God, and David calling down for judgment on them, he's moved to introspection. David has asked God to destroy the wicked, but then he has moved to the understanding that there is hidden evil within himself. So David hates the sin that he sees overtly, and he asks God to reveal the unseen sin of his own heart. David prays, God, destroy overt sin and reveal covert sin. He prays, and ask God to actively search his heart and his mind, to search as one searches for hidden treasure, see if there is he is harboring sin in his own heart. Now the implications for this are much more straightforward for us. <laughs> we should pray that God would reveal hidden sin in our lives, that by his power we might overcome them for his glory and our joy. But let us be cautious in using this prayer. Henry Melville, the evangelical priest, said, I call upon you to be cautious in using this prayer. It is easy to mock God by asking Him to search you whilst you have made little effort to search yourselves, perhaps still less to act upon the result of that scrutiny. Why would we ask God to search us and know us in search of sin when we know there is obvious sin in our lives? I think we need not pray and ask the Lord to search us for sin if there's obvious sin in our lives. We need not ask God to search us if we are lazy, complaining employees. We need not ask God to search us if we are overbearing and unmerciful employers. We need not ask God to search us for sin if you're a young person and your attitude toward your parents is constantly one of hatred and resentment. You need not ask God to search you, husband, father, wife, mother. If you are more concerned with the pursuit of money or power or recreation, than you are the spiritual and emotional well-being of your family. You need not ask God to search you if his glory is not your highest aim. I would suspect that many of us are in that category today, and we need not God to search us to find sin, we need God to give us the grace to fight the sin that we see. I could not help when going through this part of the message and thinking about where we've been in John and the, the reality that there is a real way in which we have the Spirit of Jesus in us and that that Spirit is working in us and for us. To fight sin. Now I know that many of you are passionately pursuing the glory of God and are not living in obvious continual sin. For you, I would commend this prayer Search me, O God, know my thoughts, reveal hidden and unseen sin in my life, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a somewhat vague term, but I think it best understood to be the way that opposes the way of the ungodly in Psalm 1 that will perish. David prays that God would lead him in God's everlasting way. So what's the big idea of this meditation on Psalm 139? For me it was that wonderful knowledge fuels passionate pursuit. I know that in this last portion of the message, I have focused on sin. However, I would like to remind us that the majority of this passage is on the wonder of God's glory. And that is where I would have you focus your meditation. For in seeing and savoring the wonder of God's glory, it is in that that we are changed into His image. For we were once the epitome of the people that David called out for judgment on. If you are trusting in Jesus this morning, you have been radically transformed positionally. Wonderful knowledge of God will naturally lead us to despise the observable witness in our own heart and lead us to pursue God with such passion that we will need God to reveal the unseen sin in our life. that He might expose it and lead us into greater passion in pursuit of Him. Let us be continually in wonder at the omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign God, and let that wonder fuel our passionate pursuit of His likeness, that He might be glorified in every aspect of who we are. you'd bow with me for just a moment as the music team t- comes to just meditate for just a moment on this the reality of, of God's glory we've we we saw the the holy and just God who created the universe yet He knows us intimately. And because of Jesus Christ, He is constantly thinking of and working in our lives for our good. There's nothing we can do to separate us from God's presence. Be amazed by that. And let that fuel your pursuit of His likeness. This is the prayer that I've prayed for myself and I pray it for you as well. Lord, give us a vision of your glory. In Jesus name I pray. Amen.